morning, Crossroads. How are you this morning? So glad you're able to join us, whether you're joining us in person, in the room, or online. We are so glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Tyler, and I have the great joy and privilege of being the Lompoc Campus Pastor for Crossroads, as well as the Hub Director, which is our youth ministry program that takes place every Thursday night in the Buellton parking lot. Uh, every single week, regardless of who it is that is up here, we try and tell you about the greatest story that we believe is ever written. Uh, we try and communicate, convey, and uncover the truth about the person of Jesus, who we believe wasn't not only a man, but he was Emmanuel, God with us, or God in the flesh. The way we do this is we do this with the Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, maybe you forgot yours at the car, maybe you don't too lazy to pull out your smartphone and pull out the Bible app, that's okay because we have ushers standing by who will get a Bible for you. So go ahead, feel free, slip up your hand. They'll get you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please take it home, read it every single day because we say around here, every time you open the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. That's right. Man, you guys are good. You've been around the block a few times. So we've been in a series for the past three weeks. This is now the fourth week. The series is entitled The Church, The Ecclesia, The Gathering. And what we're hoping to do through this season is to give you practical applications and ways in which the church is important in today's life. Uh, through the season of Advent, which is the expectation and the coming of Jesus, we decided to tell you about the greatest expression that Jesus gave us after his ascension to the right hand of God, which is his church. The first week we talked about the gathering, the expectation and the importance of the gathering of the body of believers. Next week, Pastor Sam talked about the gifts of the church. And how you are a gift to the church and you need to use your gifts to further the church. Last week, uh, we talked about the generosity of the church. It was very rare. Pastor Sam spoke on uh, tithes, offerings, giving, ultimately the generosity behind the church. Uh, if, if you're new to the church or maybe you've never had actually a good teaching given to you on how it is practical for you to tithe and give offerings to the Lord, I encourage you, go back to last week's message. Uh, I'm not going to mention anything at the end. Uh, I'm going to let you go back and listen to that sermon from last week where Pastor Sam did a phenomenal job of telling you about the importance of tithes and offerings from a biblical perspective. This week, we're going to talk about something different. Uh, you could probably guess it. It starts with a G because that's what we do. We're smart around here. We prove our smartness by coming up with sermon titles that all start with the same letter. So it is another G. If you would open your Bibles to Acts today, this is Acts 19. If you're new to the Bible, it's going to be closer to the back, almost all the way to the back. You can see, start on the left, work your way, going the opposite direction. Acts 19, we're just going to be talking about one verse today. It comes in verse 10. Acts 19, verse 10, I'll give you a moment to get there. Acts 19, verse 10. This is what Luke tells us, the author of Acts. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to come and open your word and ultimately learn more about the person of Jesus. Help us today, Lord, as we gather to understand and to walk away with practical application of what we're called to do as a body of your church. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for the price that was paid. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive what it is you have for us this morning. We love you, Jesus. 
It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray these things. And everyone at Crossroads says, amen, amen. So this is a small verse. Without the context of the verse, it might get lost with what's actually happening. So Acts 19 is all about Paul in Ephesus. He stayed at Ephesus for a couple years, actually, talking about the gospel and good news of Jesus. This is where it comes to Acts 19, verses 10, where it says, This continued for two years, the continuation of Paul just proclaiming the good news and the gospel of Jesus to the people all around Asia. And it says he did this for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All of the people in the surrounding area, because of the work that Paul had done in Ephesus, had heard the good news about Jesus. This morning, what we're talking about is we're talking about the growth of the church. Now, when we say that, a lot of times we start thinking about metrics of numbers within a local church or within a building. Um, Oftentimes when people or pastors talk about the growth of the church, they immediately start talking about the growth of this church. And this church, I, for those of you who don't know, I've only been here about 10 months, Um, but I did go back and I learned about some of the previous pastors, about when the church was established, the building of this building, which is fairly new. It used to just be in there. So you could see by the evidence of this plot of land that this church has grown over the years. But it's much more than just about this local church. See, it's about the ecclesia, the gathering, the body of believers. And what we plan to do this morning is to look at the glory of Christ in the growth of his church. And the best way we can do that is to go back and let's view our scope a little bit bigger. And let's go back to the very beginning of the establishment of the church to see how Christ has been glorified in the growth of his church. Now, some of you, how many of you come from a big family? Big family. I was talking to a family. They have seven kids. Uh, I don't come from a big family, but it's funny how when you start talking about family, it's like, oh, I love my big family, but I wish I was just an only kid so I could have been spoiled, you know? Or you talk to the people who are in a small family, and they're like, oh, I wish I was a part of a big family because then I'd have brothers and sisters that were closer in my age we could pick on. I'm sure all of us had that friend, or maybe you were that friend that had that little brother and sister that their mom or dad always made take them with them, and it was always like, hey, take your brother with you. It's like, mom, I don't want to take him with us because he just didn't really fit in and what you wanted to do. But hey, guess what? You got a little whipping boy for the day. You know, you could make fun of him. He just became kind of the, the, sorry. I, I was not that kid, but we all know who was. All right. See, we, some of us come from a big family, but can I tell you family is, is difficult. When you start talking about family, it brings up a lot of different emotions. For some people, they even use this word. It's a, it's a trigger word. See, some of us come from a big family. Some of us come from a a small family. Some of us come from a a good family. Some of us come from a broken family. Some of us come from a, a close family that still gathers every holiday season. And then some of us come from an estranged family where you don't even talk anymore. Some of us come from a family that you truly loved and enjoyed. And some of us come from a family that, if we're honest, we weren't really happy to be a part of. But can I tell you, your family is much larger than you actually think. 
Your family is much larger than you actually think. It's far more vast than you could ever begin to think or imagine. As a Jesus follower, you can't even begin to imagine or fathom how large your family is. See, everyone sitting in this room that confesses Jesus is their Lord and Savior is all a part of the same family, and not just the family nucleus of the local family that meets in their homes, but this is an eternal family where we spend all eternity together worshiping and praising King Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of God. Your family is far bigger than you could ever think or imagine, but let's be honest. We've talked over the past couple weeks. Sometimes family, even the church family, can be a little messy. That's just the reality. But that was all with intention. If you want to hear more, you can go back and talk about uh, here three weeks ago, the gathering where we discuss a little bit more of the intentionality behind the gathering, why it's actually important that sometimes we disagree or sometimes it's a little difficult. That was all with intention. But your family is far bigger than you could ever think or imagine. You're part of a family that is vast, that's worldwide, that's global. Your family is much bigger than you could ever think or imagine. Ephesians 1, 5 and Hebrews 2, 11 tells us that we're all a part of the family of God when we've accepted Jesus. It's funny how we don't even necessarily talk about family, but sometimes we talk about things like uh, citizenship, uh, patriotism, all of these different things. And I, I remember having a conversation with a friend. We were just standing outside of my garage. I'll, I'll never forget this because it really was kind of like, oh my gosh. A friend of ours was was running by, and I'm sure we've all heard this over the past couple years. Uh, it was right after the election. We won't get into anything like that, but this person was was very upset about how the election had turned out. But he was under the full confidence and assurance of, don't worry, there's a change coming. The war is going to start. The battle is not over. We are going to rise up and fight against this. Get ready. I remember when he said that, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, and I remember... My, my buddy just said, I think that dude needs to check his citizenship. What he meant by that is an important practice for us as believers. See, my citizenship isn't here. It's not in the U.S. My citizenship is much larger, much vaster, much bigger than that, and much more important than that. Philippians 3.20, Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven Because we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God, the Most High. Our citizenship is not about this. In Paul's time, it was all about Rome. Your citizenship is not in Rome. Don't get so lost and you think that this is the end-all, be-all. No, your citizenship is much larger, much faster, much greater, and encompasses so much more than you could ever begin to imagine. Your citizenship is in heaven. See, families, citizenships... How many of you have ever done a, a, a 23 and me? That's all right. Some people don't want to raise their hands. I, I haven't, although I'm curious because I hear some really crazy ones when people say like, oh, yeah, I came back as like 2% Asian. And I'm like, you're white, dude. What are you talking about? Like, how's that work? So it, it piqued my interest a little bit of like, ah, oh, this seems entertaining. I almost wanted to do one in preparation for this morning's sermon, but I ended up not doing it because I, again, might be kind of weird. I might be shaking a little bit. But there's a fascination in today with this idea of a 23andMe. For you who are not familiar, there's a lot of different programs out there. What it is 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 you send in your DNA. Already some of you are like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, no way am I going to do background. What encompasses your heritage? Um, 
Again, my, there's some people that are very interested by this, and I, I think that's completely okay. I, I love history. I love knowing heritage. I love knowing traditions. I, I uh, am Scottish on one side of my family. That's where Ogletree comes from. It's Clan Ockletree, which is ultimately Clan Campbell. Like, I, I'm, I'm legitimately interested in some of that stuff. I've been to the Highland Games, not in Scotland, but in Ventura, so I don't know if you could quite call them the, the Highland Games, but... Uh, you know, dudes were in skirts and they were throwing logs, so it's close enough for me. Um, I, I, I know some of my heritage. I know the other side. Uh, I'm actually uh, Hispanic, Mexican. My grandma uh, is still lives uh, sometimes in Mexico, sometimes in, in the U.S., um, but I don't know much about that heritage or where we come from exactly over there. But I think it's completely okay to understand where you came from and the heritage and traditions that you have, but if you get so lost in that, if you get so wrapped up in that, because let's be honest, some of us are wanting and desiring some sort of heritage to where we can celebrate something. Maybe it's Native American, so maybe we can get some money, you know? Or just know the heritage in which we came from. We long and desire for something with heritage and lineage so that we can celebrate that and put it on a pedestal. Can I tell you right now, the family you're a part of is one of the most diverse cross-cultural, multilingual, global families that have ever existed, which is found in the family of God. You have brothers and sisters all over the world, all over the globe, that speak in many different languages, that have meant, do many different things for livings. All of that is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that we call people like that, brothers and sisters. It's, it's not by accident that when you come to church sometimes, sometimes they call people brother or sister. Although that can seem kind of weird at first, it really is a family dynamic that we have here. Principles are the same wherever we go. And what I mean by that is sometimes you go to a different church and we begin to look at families and sometimes we look at families in a way of like, well, they do something really weird so I can't really be a part of that family or they're into like hardcore extreme bicycling and, and I'd rather stay inside and read a book so I really don't want to be a part of that family. But our family, our family has all the same principles. This is how we can determine who is a part of the family and who isn't. See, the Bible gives us simple principles to live by. The early church would gather for prayer, the reading of the word, worship, and the gathering together. And when you look at those four principles, you can start to determine who is a part of the family and who is not. See, we gather and we pray. We've already prayed multiple times this morning. We open the word every single week because we believe this is how we find the truth about the person of Jesus. We sing songs and worship. Maybe some of you don't sing. Maybe you're like, no, nah, I'll sing later on when no one else is around. But every week we gather and we sing worship to the king. Now, the methods in which churches do that, a part of our family do that, may look very different. Some people recite the same prayer. In some parts of the family, they just pray a little bit more freely and open. Some parts of the family, they have just an organ or a piano on the stage, and that's all that they sing worship to. Some have a full band. The, the method is not the important part. It's the principle. We sing to King Jesus because he is worthy. 
We open the word every single week because we believe there's power in this word. We pray not for us, but for God. It's not so that we can do something for God, but it's to reset our hearts and minds and an understanding of, God, I need you every single moment and every single day. The principles are all the same in this family, but understand the methods may be vast. Some churches meet in a building or in a cathedral. I've heard of churches meeting in bars on Sundays when they're closed. Principles are the same, gather together. Methods may look vastly different. But even in understanding this family, sometimes it's important that we don't just look at now and today, but we step back and we extend that scope a little bit further and we begin to look at something that's called maybe the family tree. How many of you have a family tree in your household that you know of? My grandfather took an immense amount of time in going through and looking at the family tree, and I'm so grateful for it because it's something I would just never have the patience to do. I just don't have that kind of uh, detective work. But he spent, spent weeks and weeks and years mapping out different parts of the family tree as far back as he could possibly go. And there's value in that knowing about how the family started, where did it come from, the life and history of other people in this family, ultimately tracing back to the person of Jesus in which the birth of the church happened. We're here because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. See, the family tree is something that we need to step back, look at, explore, and ultimately have our faith increased in knowing that there has been many people for thousands of years that have come before us in this growth of the family. So we're going to take a look at a little bit of the history of the church. Again, I'm, I'm a bit of a history buff. I enjoy history. This comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 8. Now what happens here is this, is this is a story about Jesus and Peter and an interaction that they have. And Jesus goes, who do people say that I am? And they begin to tell him, oh, some, some say this, uh, some say this, some say this. And he goes, well, who do you say that I am? And this is, Peter tells him that you are the Christ, the Son of God. This is Jesus' response to Peter. For flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. On this rock I will build my church church. On this rock, I will build my church. There's a couple key principles that we need to take away here as we explore and look at the growth of the church and also the eager expectation of where the church is ultimately going. Jesus is the one that builds the church. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. It's not up to me. Not a very good builder. I'd like to think I am, but I'll tell you what, some of the projects I do, I go, not very good at this. I am not a great builder. People sometimes are difficult and frustrating. Amen? Sometimes people are hard. I mean, if family is hard, strangers are even more difficult sometimes. It's not up to you to build the church. That should be a sigh of relief. For those of you who have been a part of the church a long time and have been told it's up to you, you have to go out, you have to get people, you need to build the church. Maybe it's people who are new to the faith and they go, man, like I love Jesus, but I don't know how to go out and actually get people to come to the church. There should be a sigh of relief in knowing it is not up to you. Jesus builds the church, not you. Now you have a part 
to play. We say, we talk about this around here of uh, taking your kid to work. Uh, me and my wife did foster care and we had two little boys and uh, it was so fun sometimes getting to work with them uh, because they were absolutely useless with it. But they got so much joy out of partaking. Give one of them a tire pump and they just pump up tires. Not even connected to anything. Don't matter. <laughs> They're just pumping away. Give them little hammers. Sometimes you get brave and you give them a, a nice light little hammer that's actually real and that actually makes clinking noises. We've all probably worked with kids in some degree. This is exactly what the church is like in building the church. See, we have a role to play. We have a part to play, but you got a plastic hammer. The joy that we get is going to work with our Father. That's how Jesus builds the church. Jesus builds the church through us, but let's be honest. God works in spite of me, not because of me, right? It's not because of me that Jesus is able to work, but it's in spite of me, because I'll be honest, I'm a bonehead sometimes. I don't get it right very often. As much as I think I get it right, I probably get it right maybe an eighth of that time actually, okay? God works in spite of me, not because of me, and this keeps me humble when I understand this. When I know that God is able to work in spite of me and not because of me, it keeps me humble and it also gives this sigh of relief of like, Lord, you're doing something far bigger and greater than I could ever begin to think or imagine. When I think there's no hope, I understand that I have the God of hope, the living hope, the person of Jesus. And that gives me a peace that surpasses all understanding. Jesus tells Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. How do I know that it is Jesus that builds the church and not me? Well, let's take a look at how the church started, shall we? Jesus is crucified, goes in the grave for three days and rises again. His resurrection comes and he starts appearing to the disciples. He appears to the disciples, Acts tells us, for a period of 40 days, it says he was appearing to the disciples. So 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus is now appearing and hanging out with the disciples at times. And then he ascends into heaven and he tells the disciples, don't leave Jerusalem until the promised Holy Spirit comes. Pentecost comes. Pentecost means 50. This is 50 days after the Passover, which was a couple days right before Jesus' crucifixion, which was three days before his resurrection, which was 40 days before his ascension. Now we're at Pentecost, 50 days after this. And for 10 days around about, the disciples are sitting in an upper room with about 120 of them. The disciples, men and women, are gathered there in this upper room. It must have been a big upper room because I don't know, 120 people seems like a lot, but when you think about the vast majority of Jesus' ministry for three years where he let, went out of Nazarene and he went anywhere from 30 to 60 miles circumference around the city where he was born, that was the mission work of Jesus, 30 to 60 miles outside of his birthplace for three years. At times he fed thousands of people. And what we see is after his ascension, 120 people gathered in the upper room where they're awaiting the promised Holy Spirit. What's amazing is you can go back in the beginning of Acts and you see the Holy Spirit coming down on the disciples in the upper room like tongues of fire. They begin speaking in other languages to where others gathering for Pentecost would hear this. And let me tell you how I know that Jesus is the one that builds his church. 
Peter's first sermon ever given in Acts. I'm going to read portions of it to you. We're going to talk about the, the complete lunacy of what he's saying in evidence that Jesus is the only one that can build the church. This comes from Acts chapter 1. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. Men of Israel, hear these words. This is after Peter has been filled with the Holy Spirit. The same Peter who who told Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God, but who also told him, no, you can't go to the cross and die. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. This is the same Peter who goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration to come down and find a boy demon-possessed. They're unable to get the demon out of him. And Jesus goes, how long am I going to have to be with you, you foolish disciples? This is the Peter that we see now filled with the promised Holy Spirit. And this is the first proclamation of the gospel by a disciple, the gospel being the good news of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and out and out of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and now hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's sermon is saying one very simple thing. Our God has become king by way of the cross. Thank you. The God that we now serve and the miracles that you witnessed and are still witnessing, our God has become king by way of the cross. Now, the cross is something that nowadays we look at and it's almost a sign of hope, peace. But, but can I tell you a little bit of history on the cross, crucifixion. Deuteronomy 21, it says this, that anyone hanged on a tree is cursed. This is what the Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch, says of anyone who is hanged on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night, but you shall bury him with the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Crucifixion was a Roman way of torture. See, oftentimes we just think of it as an immediate death, but no, 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 this, this was a device of torture. The Romans were good at torture. They had spent a lot of time perfecting the ways in which to torture a person before killing them, and the, cruci the crucifixion was one of the worst. What they did is, this was the, the, the reserved for the absolute worst of the worst. The heretics who committed crimes against the church, murderers and thieves who had stolen from Rome, this is the death that Jesus 
had a sinner's death, a murderer's death, a heretic's death. What they do is they would give you a giant cross beam that you would have to carry. And before giving you that, they would beat you in many different ways to make it more difficult. They would give you this cross beam a lot. Of, they would tie it around, and it was this massive beam that you would carry that would span the whole width and further than your shoulders. Almost think of a giant railroad tie that they would lash to you, and you would begin walking down a road with people lined on multiple sides, ultimately marching you to the place where they would kill you. It wasn't always tradition that they would nail your hands and your feet. Sometimes they would just tie them to that. And sometimes you would go, well, how do you kill someone like that? What it is is this was not a form of torture in a way that the death would be immediate. This was a slow, painful, arduous death. It was a death not of losing blood, but ultimately of asphyxiating. You wouldn't be able to breathe because think about it, as you're holding all of your weight on that cross and you would have to pick yourself up in order to catch a breath only to fall back down again and not be able to breathe. And they would nail a lot of times, not in the hands, but in the wrists and then in the feet. So you can imagine that you would have to pick yourself up to catch a breath only to fall back down on the weight. And Roman soldiers, as this took too long, what they would end up doing is they would go and then they would break the legs of the person so that they would not be able to lift with their legs, but just with their hands. The scripture tells us that no body in Jesus' blood, no, no uh, bone in Jesus' body would be broken, so he died before this. But in order to test to see if he was actually dead, they took a spear and they pierced his side and blood and water came out. A beautiful reflection of Genesis, of the waters flowing out of Eden. Yet again, the water flows out of Jesus. But there had to be a sacrifice made. There had to be atonement. Life is in the blood there has to be a blood sacrifice, and therefore blood and water come out of the side of Jesus. This is the death that Jesus endured so that the church would grow. All of this was for his church. All of this were for the people that would become family co-heirs, adopted as sons and daughters into the family of Christ. And what's so amazing is this is the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. Our God has become king by way of the cross, the Roman device for torture. Because of what you did to him, punishing and killing him as a criminal, now we are adopted now we have hope because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Do you understand how crazy this is? This is the first message of Peter on Pentecost. The cross. It's all by the cross. How do I know Jesus alone grows the church? Because what once was used as a device for Roman torture universally is now a sign of hope, a sign of health, universally a sign that all are equal. See, at the foot of the cross, it doesn't matter anything about your history, doesn't matter about your heritage, doesn't matter about your lineage, 
Doesn't matter about what you've done. See, we're all equal at the foot of the cross, and that's good news. What once was a universal sign of death, punishment, torture, murder, heresy, reserved for the worst of the worst, has completely been flipped on its head. And now we wear them around our necks. We make earrings out of them. Listen, 2,000 years ago, that was absolute lunacy. But Jesus grows the church because he changed everything when he died on the cross. Little did they know what they were doing. But Jesus changed everything. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. What's amazing about this is Jesus in the one, is the one that builds his church, but let me tell you, there will be things that stand in the way. As you have that toy hammer at work with your dad, you might still smash your finger. It won't hurt as bad as if it was a real hammer, but I'll tell you, you might still feel it. The gates of hell shall not prevail, but the enemy is still active in trying to oppose the church. We can see this throughout all of history. Every single one of the apostles was martyred for their faith except for one. But they were willing to die knowing that it's all for Jesus. Church fathers and history's past have been told, just denounce that Jesus is Lord and we won't feed you to the lions. And an 87-year-old man just says, he's been so good to me for these 87 years. How can I denounce him now? Do what you must. It's temporary. But the growth of the church is eternal. And let me tell you, Jesus is not done yet building his church. And the good news is, you have a part to play. You may be holding a toy hammer, but Jesus builds his church. What we get, we get the joy of going to work with our Father. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the birth and the growth of the church that we see throughout these past 2,000 years. Our world today looks radically different because of the cross that you died on the sinner's cross in my place, where now at the feet of the cross we are all equal, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. But by grace, by unmerited, undeserved favor, we are brought in. Jesus, help us to find joy in going to work with our Father. Understanding that we don't have to do it all, fact, we do very little because we know that you work in spite of us, not because of us. Give us joy in all of life's circumstances and situations. And let us celebrate that we get to work with our Father. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray these things. Everyone at Crossroads says, amen. Amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?